are in the middle of a series on the mission and values of our church. We said a couple weeks ago that it is the first part of the new year, and we wanted to remind ourselves why we exist, what we are doing here in the first place. We talked about the mission of God that Jesus gave us, uh, and we've been talking about core values. And core values, like we said last week, are things that we hold dear, things that we prioritize. We talked about prayer last week, that, that we want to be people who are in communion and in communication with God, and um, that that is from that is what our entire spiritual life flows from, is a life of prayer. And so today we're going to move on to core value number two, which is right up there on the uh, banner. It says, submitted to scripture humbly. Uh, what we're going to do today is um, talk a little bit about how the Bible works. Uh, and it's going to be a little more academic, maybe, than what we usually do. Um, so you might, if you're a note taker, you might take notes today because it's. I'm going to throw a lot of things out. There's going to be a lot of scripture references. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew, and I will call out those page numbers uh, if so you don't get lost. Um, but historically, uh, beginning in... I want to say the 6th century when the religion of Islam was kind of taking hold. Um, the Quran, which is the holy book of that religion, uh, began to refer, uh, it, it wrote about Christians in the Quran. And in the Quran, it, it calls Christians people of the book. And that was, that was not meant as an insult, but it wasn't really meant as a compliment either. But the Christians, over time, as they interacted with Muslim culture, took that moniker on as a badge of honor. That Christians are people of the book. That this set of writings that we have in front of us, that we have access to, is what we base our life on. It's what we get our understanding of who God is from. It's how we know how to live, what God would want from us. And what we're not going to do today is argue for that. There's a lot of really good resources if you're interested in, like, is the Bible true? Is the Bible reliable? How did we get the Bible? There's a lot of really good authors that write on that. And if you need suggestions, come find me. I can give you some. But the Bible itself says things like that. In 2 Timothy 3.16, um, Paul says that the Word of God is inspired. It's breathed in by God. Uh, Peter elsewhere says that, that the Spirit of God moved in the prophets to write down what they wrote. And Psalm 119 says, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so this is kind of the foundation that we start from. That our understanding of God, our understanding of people and of the spiritual world comes from this book. And so we are people that are willing to live our lives submitted to the authority of God through this book because we believe that God is communicating to us through it. So that's where we're going to start. That's our assumption for the day. If you don't share that assumption, that's okay. But this is where we're going to begin. So 2 Peter, uh, if you have a pew Bible, that's 1080 page 1080. 
Peter's been talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the day of the Lord, this time when all injustice will be righted, when all the wrongs will be atoned for, when Jesus is going to return, set up his kingdom on the earth, and rule and reign in righteousness. And this is most of 2 Peter is about this topic, and 2 Peter chapter 3 especially. And then so he says in the end of his book, he says, therefore, in verse 14, dear friends, while you wait for these things, while you wait for Jesus to return, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. He says, so while you're waiting for the Lord to return, live a life of holiness, at peace with people as much as possible. Be about the business of the Lord while you're waiting. There's, there's a tendency, I think, for, for people who are so excited about the return of Christ to forget that we have a job to do while we're waiting for him to return. And Peter says, don't do that. Focus your life on holiness and peace. Also, he says in verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, some people were saying in the first century at that time that because God hasn't returned yet, he's never going to. So he, he's, he didn't really, either he didn't really say he was going to or he lied to us. He's never coming back. And Peter says, no, no, regard God's patience as part of his plan of salvation. Because if Jesus had come back in Peter's lifetime... I wouldn't be a Christian. If Jesus had come back in the height of the Jesus movement in the 1960s, many of us wouldn't have been saved. And so every day that passes where Jesus doesn't return is another opportunity for God's people to be out in the world sharing his love with everyone that doesn't know him. And it's part of his plan of salvation. And and there will be a time when everyone will have heard and had a chance to either accept the offer or not, and then Jesus will return. But until then, his plan of salvation is that as many people as possible should be gathered into the kingdom. So Peter says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. And this is a neat little glimpse into like the real life of the Bible. Peter and Paul are real people. They're real men traveling around the Roman Empire, planting churches, building up churches, writing letters. And Peter says, you know, Paul writes about this same kind of stuff in his letters too. In verse 16, he speaks about these things in all his letters. Paul is constantly talking about the return of Christ. There are some matters that are hard to understand. And I love this because Peter, Peter is one of Jesus' best friends. Peter is the founding leader of the entire church of God. If you read in Acts 2 on Pentecost, he stands up and he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved and he's kind of made in charge of the church. He spent three years with Jesus and he reads Paul's writing and he goes, some of that stuff's really hard to understand. I love that. I 
<laughs> because because he's right. Like I read Paul's writings and I go, so, this is really hard to understand. And I I don't know half as much as Peter does. And Peter says, you know, there's some stuff that's hard to understand. And he says, the untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So he immediately calls Paul's letters, Paul wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament, he calls them scripture. He says, just like the Old Testament that they would have had and read regularly, Paul's letters are scripture. They were inspired by God. And Peter, Paul's contemporary, recognizes this. But he says, some, some people twist the scriptures, twist Paul's letters, twist Peter's letters. And the first kind of people that do this, they're called untaught people. Untaught people are ignorant. They are um, people who do not know. They have not learned. It's okay to be untaught as long as you know that you're untaught. Like my eldest daughter, uh, she knits, I think. Do you knit? You don't crochet. See, I am untaught in the ways of knitting. I have no idea. She sits on the couch and has some sticks. No idea. But if I walk around going like, I'm just such a great knitter. I, I knit with the best of them. Like then it gets kind of weird. <laughs> because sooner or later somebody's going, hey, knit for me. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't knit for others. I knit for myself, you know. And what, whatever the topic is, it's okay to be untaught. It's okay to be ignorant. But recognize that you're ignorant. Recognize that you're untaught. But then he says unstable people. Unstable people. People who are constantly shifting their views. It's, it's really easy, especially in our day, to have access to tons and tons of information. And, and you, you read something or you see something and you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then you very quickly see something else and go, oh, that, that makes more sense. You change your mind and, and you, you go after whatever is new and exciting and, and this teacher over there has a new twist on that and this, this one over here says this d- different thing and it's just like the, the rush that you get from having new information. I knew a guy once who um, we had these long conversations about God and about the world and, and they always drifted into this idea that like, it was, you know, the government and black helicopters and the, what they put in the water, and it was all wrapped up in the plan of the Antichrist, and nobody else knows it but me, and I'm telling you. And some people are just feeding off this special knowledge. And Peter says, these two kinds of people, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, Because of that, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we know this in advance? Do we recognize this about people? Are are we prepared for people that are twisting the scriptures and are potentially leading us from the truth? Because see, like, I, I want Peter to say, like, to have a different category here. I want Peter to say there are some people that are wicked. 
and they're out to get you. And they, you know, wear a black cape and a top hat and have a cane and they snicker and, and they're going to steer you away from the truth. But that's not what Peter says because I think when we see those people, if you ever see that guy, I want a picture, we go, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't listen to him. He's probably bad news. He doesn't seem trustworthy. But the categories of people that Peter calls out, these are people that probably have good intentions. People who are untaught, people that are just excited about new things. They, they just, they want to get in, they want to share what they think they know, but they end up leading people astray. And the thing is, like, that's potentially all around us. Like, I get up here every week and I tell you what the Bible means. And I say stuff like, this is a better translation of that Greek word, and the text over here means such and such. How do you know I'm telling the truth? So Peter says, be on your guard. So what we're going to do, we're going to use this idea as a jumping off point this morning. And for the rest of our time together, I'm going to just give you some thoughts about how the Bible works um, to help you better be on your guard against teaching that might not be correct. And these are things, most of this stuff comes from the work of a Bible scholar named Michael Heiser, uh, who's pretty brilliant. And I picked these things specifically because there are things that I have found myself doing, either in my own private study or when I've had the opportunity to teach people. I've made these mistakes. They're easy to make. And we see them made and we kind of think, well, this is how we do Bible study. But I want to talk about them because I think they will help us to be more clearly committed to what the Bible actually says. So if you're taking notes, I've got three categories of ways to get your belief in the Bible. And the first one is to remember that reading the Bible isn't the same as studying the Bible. If you open up the Bible and you, maybe you've got a Bible reading plan that you're going to do through the year, and you open it up, and you read through it, and you have a chapter or two chapters, and you ask God to show you something and speak to you, that's awesome, and you should totally be doing that. But it's not the same as digging into what the text means and studying. This is something that um, most people don't take the opportunity to study. They don't take the opportunity to learn something about the biblical languages, learn about the context of the passage. On the flip side, people who study for a living, like pastors, forget to read the Bible devotionally. They for, I have to remind myself that I just need to go spend time with the Lord and get in the Word and read and listen to His voice. Because both of those things are important, but they're not the same thing. The easiest way, if you want to begin studying the Bible and, and actually figuring out what it means, is to get a study Bible. A study Bible, there's lots of good study Bibles, and they come with notes that are written by Bible scholars, men and women who have committed their lives to digging into the Word. And they explain some things about the Bible that might not be immediately clear. So that's number one. Recognize that reading and studying aren't the same. Make time to do both. 
Number two is pay attention to what the Bible actually says. When somebody says, somebody like me, says, the Bible says this, but it doesn't really mean that. What it really means is this other thing. I should have a really good reason for saying that. And if I don't, you should call me out on it. And this can go two different ways. So turn to Revelation chapter 8. That's on page 1094 of the Pew Bible, if you have that. So Revelation chapter 8 is way too complicated to really explain right now. But Revelation 8.1 says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I was taught for many years in multiple studies of the book of Revelation that when John says there was silence in heaven for half an hour, he doesn't really mean that because there's no such thing as time in heaven. And as I've studied more, I've come to realize that the Bible doesn't actually say that there's no time in heaven. There's a theological system that assumes that God exists outside of time, and so wherever God lives must not have time in it, and God lives in heaven, so heaven doesn't have time in it. So John says there's silence in heaven for half an hour, but he doesn't really mean that. But that's not really what the Bible says. The Bible says that there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And without a better reason to discount that, I feel like we should assume that there was silence in heaven for half an hour. But if you, it works the other way as well. In Matthew 26, which is page 882, Matthew 26, 26, Matthew writes, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. So what does Jesus say? He says, This is my body. He's talking about the communion meal, the, the bread and the cup that we share every week. And so if you, if you have a, a Catholic background, you, maybe you recognize that Catholic theology says that the bread of communion actually becomes the body of Christ at a cellular level. And so then you have Catholic theologians that ask questions like, so is it still the body of Christ in our stomach? Is it still the body of Christ when we go to the bathroom? What if some of it falls from the table and a mouse picks it up? Does that mouse become a Christian? And those are all serious uh, Catholic discussions that they've pondered over the years. Because, see, they see in that passage that Jesus says, this is my body. But I think there's a really good set of evidence that would say, Jesus is just using a metaphor here. He's painting a picture with an object. And that's a bigger study than we have time for today. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the Bible actually saying? And what is it trying to communicate? And that takes a little bit of work sometimes. The third thing to keep in mind is the idea that context is king. 
You may have heard that before. That's the cardinal rule of Bible study. Context is king. Context is the circumstances that form the setting for a statement. So, what's going on around the words that are being used? Uh, Theologian, uh, Old Testament scholar John Walton is fond of saying, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And that's an important distinction. The people that were supposed to read the first five books of the Bible, they were the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Moses wrote those for them. He wasn't really thinking about 21st century Americans when he wrote that book. Apostle Paul wrote the book, the letter to the Ephesians, to the Ephesians, to the specific circumstances, to the life in the style of writing that they would have understood. Now, God has inspired the text and given it to us for our own understanding, but we have to remember that it was written a long time ago, and it wasn't written to us, and so it takes some work on our part to figure out what it means sometimes. And I want to talk about three contexts. The first context is the grammatical context, so words and sentences, Words don't mean anything by themselves. And you may go like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm sure they do. But if I, if I give you a word like run, R-U-N, and I say, what does that word mean? You can't really tell me. You could offer some guesses, but without knowing more about what's happening in the context, you don't know what it means. Is it a noun? Is it, is it a line of paint that's dripping down the wall, a run? Is it a score in the baseball game, a run? Or is it a special area that's fenced off for animals to use? But what if it's a verb? What if it's a pace that's faster than walking? Or what if it's the condition of a machine in a factory? That machine is running. What if it's someone seeking a political office? I'm going to run for president. Or what if it's a collision with something? Don't run into the wall. Without any context, we don't know what run actually means. And so when we find words in the Bible, we have to treat them the same way. So we have to ask ourselves, how is this word used in the first century if it's a Greek New Testament word? How are other people using this word? How are people using this word in the Bible in general? How is it used by the author that wrote it? Turn to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is a pretty famous verse. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If we ask the question, what does the word called mean? We read this verse and we read some surrounding verses. We would find out that called means saved. If you're a Christian, you've been called. You are one of God's people. God has chosen you, Paul would say. But then if we go to Matthew 22, 
Matthew 22, verse 14, Matthew writes that Jesus says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, in the Greek, that's the same word. The word is kletos, and it means called. But Paul is using that word in a completely different way than Matthew is. When all throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew never uses called in a way that would indicate already one of God's people. He always uses that word to talk about an invitation to everyone. Everyone is called, but not everybody accepts the invitation. But when Paul uses it, he uses it very differently. Same word, two different meanings, just like in English. And we have to keep that in mind. When we're reading Paul, he's going to use words a certain way. When we're reading Matthew, he might be using them a different way. What we tend to do if we're going to study words is we'll, we'll get something like a Strong's Concordance, if you've ever, if you've ever done any word study. And, and we go to a verse because we want to look at what the word means. And then we go to the concordance. And what I've done in the past and what I'm guilty of doing even now, if I don't remind myself, is that we'll see the word and there'll be a list of meanings. And we'll go, I like that meaning the best. And that's the meaning we choose. But that's not how words work. If you heard the sentence, we were invited to play in the basketball game and we killed it. Did I just confess to murder? Well, maybe, <laughs> but probably not, because killed it means different things depending on the context. And so we have to be aware of the larger context of what we're reading. And that's the grammatical context. These next two things I think are kind of fun. This is literary context. Turn to Mark 6. This is page 893. So literary context says that when the Bible was written, other people were writing other things that were similar in genre. If you don't know what genre is, genres, we, we have, you know, horror and action and comedy and all kinds of things. And when, in writing, we have, like, legal documents and novels and editorials and all kinds of different writing follows different rules. That's what genre is. And in Mark 6... We're going to start in verse 45. We're going to read a story that is written in a very specific genre, and that genre is a first century ghost story. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea and wanting to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, "'Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid.'" Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. And so, 
Research has been done into the first century about different kinds of writing, and, and scholars have found over and over and over again examples of ghost stories in the Roman Empire. And, and they're very similar to this account. They happen in the middle of the night or early in the morning, and things are kind of foggy and weird, and, um, and they describe things very similarly. Except there's one difference in Mark's story. In every single ghost story in the Roman world that we know of, any time a ghost is around water, that ghost is powerless. Either that ghost sinks in the water, or the people that are being chased by the ghost cross a river and the ghost can't get across the river. And so, in the context of the disciples, they would have known this about ghosts, because they, I mean, they obviously believed in ghosts because they thought they saw one, that ghosts don't like water. And yet, very strangely, this ghost is walking on the water. And so, what Mark is doing here is he is saying the disciples are so hardened, and he says it at the end of, the, of 52, their hearts were hardened, that they are totally confused. Even their understanding of ghost stories, they think that this is a ghost, even though they know that it absolutely can't be a ghost because ghosts can't walk on water. They should have known that this was Jesus. But they didn't know it was Jesus, and they made up weird excuses about it being a ghost, even though that didn't work with the world that they lived in. And this is something that I find incredibly fascinating, that that you just wouldn't know reading the story in 2019, because we we don't have that kind of mythology. So you have to do some research for the literary context. We'll do one more. It's called the historical or cultural context, and we're going to go to Matthew 18 for that. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, Jesus is telling a parable. And Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. 
Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So if we read this story as Americans, most of it makes sense. We don't really understand master-servant relationships, but we can get past that. And then there's, there's these two These two words, there's talents and denarii. And if we think about it a little bit, we can kind of figure out that talents are a lot and denarii aren't so much. And so the moral of the story is God has forgiven you a lot, so you should forgive other people the little bit that that, that they owe you. But if we dig into the cultural background of these, these terms a little bit, it gets really, really interesting. See, a a denarius was about a day's wage for an average worker. So, a hundred denarii was about three months' salary. So, if you think about, everybody makes different money, but think about three months of your salary. It's probably not insignificant. If somebody owed you three months' salary, you'd probably want that taken care of. But you could probably figure it out. You could make some payments and get a plan. Maybe it's $6,000, $10,000, whatever. You could, you could work with that person and, and, and get them to, to pay that back. 10,000 talents, however, is more money than the entire Roman Empire had at the time. And so it's not just a lot of money, it's an absurd amount of money. It's, you might as well say, a gazillion. Because there is no way that this man is going to pay this back. And it's, Jesus is actually kind of being funny here. Because he's all, and then he said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. No, you won't. There is no way you will pay that back. You can work your entire life. There's not that much money in the Roman Empire. You cannot pay that back. And this makes the story even more powerful because it shows us that God has forgiven us something that is without value. It is invaluable. There is no way that we could pay that back. And so even if somebody hurts us, even if somebody harms us, wrongs us, even if it's three months of our salary, which is not insignificant, we should still be willing to forgive our brothers and sisters. But we don't, we don't get the depth of that story unless we know a little bit about the historical context. So we want to be people that are submitted to Scripture, but we don't want to be people that don't understand it. If we're going to live our lives by this book, we need to understand how it works. And if you're like me and you, you read a scholar and, and you recognize that like this person has spent their entire life in a library 
reading Greek manuscripts. Like, there's no way. I don't have time. I don't have the ability to do that. I have no, I don't have the skills to do that. That's okay, because men and women who are called to that, they're gifts to the church. We should take advantage of the people, either in past generations or current scholars that have, because of their love for Jesus and their love for the scriptures, have given their lives to helping us understand what this book says. So some encouragements if you're feeling like, wow, this is, this is kind of hard. You can understand the Bible. You should never be dissuaded from reading the Bible. You should never be dissuaded from studying the Bible because it was written for the express purpose of your understanding it. God wants you to understand the Bible. And the overarching message of Scripture that God made humanity in His image and we screwed it up, we sinned, we fell into brokenness and rebellion, and He's been on a rescue plan culminating in Jesus to bring us back into fellowship with Him. That message is crystal clear all throughout Scripture, and that's what salvation is. And so, read the Bible knowing that God wants you to understand it. And secondly, it's okay to need help. Like I said, there are men and women who have been called by God to dedicate their lives to digging up ancient Hebrew manuscripts and figuring stuff out. And the fact is, we have more knowledge about the Bible, about the culture of the Bible, about how the Bible was written and understood than we ever have because our, our, our research and our archaeology and our scholarship is so much better than it's ever been. We are so blessed in the generation that we are living in with the resources that we have. So seek out help. Get commentaries. Get a study Bible. Find scholars that you can trust. And sometimes there's this weird thing. We, we, don't, we don't trust experts anymore. We don't trust anybody anymore. But find godly men and women who are love Jesus and utilize their knowledge to help you study the Bible. That's what they're there for. Thirdly, to be a disciple, we talked about how we are disciples of Jesus. A disciple means a learner. A learner is someone who's learning, right? Like, we, we, can't, we can't be a disciple if we are not learning, and there's so much for us to learn. We, we can be moving forward, but we never arrive. So, as long as you are here, as long as you are breathing, you are going to learn more and dig more and more out of this book, because that's the way God built it, to have multiple facets. And every time you dig into it, you'll find something new and exciting. Number four, as much as we, as it's fun to talk about Greek words and stuff, your English translation can be trusted. Sometimes it's, it's easy to think like, well, if I don't know Greek, I can't really read the Bible. The English translations that we have are some of the best in the history of the world. Um, 
and whether you're using the ESV or the King James or the NASB or the CSB or whatever, they are coming from excellent, excellent original sources and they can be trusted. And so you should never be afraid that you're not getting the real message of Scripture from the English Bible. And fifthly, anything worth getting good at is challenging. Like if you want to start a new hobby or get good at a sport or go to school, like if it's worth doing, it's going to be challenging. And so if you're like, man, I just don't have time or I don't have energy or I don't have skills, if you, if you want to know the Bible better, you can. We can be better at studying the Word. But it's, it's going to be challenging. So our core value is submitted to Scripture, but then humbly. And that's important because especially when you start studying the Bible and you learn a few Greek words and you get really excited about it, humility is not the natural direction of the human heart, right? Like if I know more than you, I'm proud of that. Like I'm going to tell you what I know. I'm going to show you how smart I am. Well, actually, the Greek word... I hate it when I'm that guy. We want to be humble people. We want to love the Scripture because Jesus is revealed in the Scripture, but we want to be humble. And as we close, I've got um, a little grid that you can put your thoughts about the Bible in, and I think it's helpful. It comes from a, a pastor named Mike Erie. He talks about opinions, beliefs, and convictions. And he says, opinions, everybody has opinions. Some people have opinions about everything. And you know that you have opinions when you read an article on Facebook and you go, yeah, that makes sense. And then you go hang out with friends and go, you know what I read on Facebook? That's an opinion. You haven't studied that. You haven't learned anything about it. You just took somebody's word for it. If, if you hear something at church and then you go and said, my pastor said this, that's an opinion. It might not be wrong, but it's pretty slippery as far as how tightly you hold it. Opinions can change. Sometimes you read an article on Facebook and you think, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then you talk to a friend about it and they say, well, actually, I read this other thing. And you think, oh, well, now that makes more sense. And you change your opinion. And that's fine. But then we get to beliefs. Beliefs are deeper and they're stronger. Beliefs happen when you have an opinion, but then you study it some more. You, you read different sources. You read other people's opinions who are opposed to your opinion. You learn to articulate, this is what I believe about this, but other people say this, and this is why they believe about that. Tim Keller says that one of the most important things to remember in a debate is that you need to be able to articulate your opponent's view in a way that they would approve of. If When you argue with people about something, you mischaracterize what they think in order to get ahead in the argument, that's not legitimate. But to hold a belief, you need to know what the other side really believes and why and understand them a little bit more. And then there's convictions. And convictions are things that are beliefs, but they're even deeper. And they're so deep, and you've held them so tightly that you're willing 
to die for them. And these categories can be overlaid into any sphere of knowledge, but when it comes to knowledge of the Bible, we should have convictions. We should have things that we believe about God's Word that we will stand on and that we'd be willing to die for. The Bible is authoritative. That's a conviction of mine. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's a conviction of mine. We are saved by grace through faith, through no work of our own. That's a conviction of mine. And these are things that I build my life on. And these are things that our church is founded on. And if somebody comes into our church, and anyone's welcome to be a part of our church, but if somebody comes up and says, you know, I really, I want to be a leader, I want to teach. I don't believe the Bible, though. I'd rather teach the Good Housekeeping magazine or whatever. Uh, Jesus was just a good teacher, and um, we get saved by giving money. Like, no. You cannot, you cannot do that here. Our convictions are such that we don't allow that. We're going we're gonna to fight about that a little bit. But then we also have beliefs. And beliefs should be held strongly, but they shouldn't be held so strongly that you make enemies for them. Like, was... Was the earth created in six literal days or did God do it over millions of years? You should have a belief about that. But if you find somebody who has a different belief about that and still loves Jesus, don't argue about it. I mean, unless you like arguing and you're having fun. But don't lose a friend over it. Is it okay to speak in tongues or was that gift done away with? Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Do we baptize babies or do we baptize adults? Now, those are things that we should study. Those are things that we should have beliefs on. But they're also things that we can agree to disagree about and still serve one another and um, move forward in the kingdom of God. And then there's opinions like, I really don't like that song. Like, whatever. <laughs> Keep that to yourself. <laughs> the number of convictions we have should be small because they're really, really important. If everything we believe is a conviction, then nothing is really a conviction. Right? Like, I know the date of the rapture, and if you disagree with me, you're going to hell. Really? <laughs> That's not that important. I mean, we can, we can talk about it, we can dialogue about it, but if everything is, you know, DEFCON 5 with everything that you believe, then you don't really hold anything as important. And so we want to be people that have incredibly strong convictions about a few things. And we want to be people that have more well-reasoned beliefs about even more things. And then we can have opinions about whatever we want. <laughs> but 
But that's what it looks like to be submitted to the scriptures humbly. To recognize that for 2,000 years, there are some things that we've been fighting about because they're not as clear as some other things. And we can have grace and love towards one another as we continue to discuss what we believe. We don't want to be people who dis- um, we don't want to be people who are I want to say besmirching. That's a dumb word. <laughs> but I'm going to do it. Besmirching, besmirching the name of Jesus because we're so argumentative and hostile to one another. We want to we want to lead with love and grace and humility. And then when if we want to talk about spiritual gifts or Calvinism or baptism, then then we can do that in a loving and gracious way. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.